The following is a conversation between Dr. David Blumenthal, president of the Commonwealth Fund, and Denver Frederick, the host of The Business of Giving. The Commonwealth Fund aims to promote a high-performing healthcare system that achieves better access, improved quality, and greater efficiency, particularly for society's most vulnerable and the elderly. The COVID-19 pandemic has more Americans examining the healthcare system like never before. And here to discuss that with us is Dr. David Blumenthal, the president of the Commonwealth Fund. Welcome to the Business of Giving, David. Thank you, Denver. Great to be here. You know, before we delve into the pandemic, quickly provide us some background on the Commonwealth Fund and what you do. The Commonwealth Fund, as you noted, aims to create a high-performing health system. We focus on what we call the three trillion, the amount of money that we spend as a country on healthcare, and our aim is to make sure it's spent well, spent fairly, and that its benefits are available equally to all Americans. Mm -hmm. You know, I think that at this juncture, most Americans do know we were not prepared for this pandemic. And let me ask you about some of the factors that went into that, starting with the profit-driven nature of the system. Did that hamper our readiness to fight this pandemic? I think what hampered our readiness was the extent to which we rely on private markets. Mm -hmm. Those markets are full of nonprofits. Some are full of for-profits. The nonprofits are also very interested in making a margin so that they can sustain their missions. I would put it as it's partly a matter of our lack of trust or heavily a matter of our lack of trust in government as an organizing force in society. And mm -hmm. there are times when you just need government. And this was one of those times. Yeah, yeah. How do you think that happened? I know it has been vilified for 50 years now, but at a situation like this, it really comes back to bite us, doesn't it? Well, in my generation, I think I trace it back to the resurgence of the conservative movement in the United mm -hmm. States, beginning with Barry Goldwater, and then moving on through Ronald Reagan, who was the first person to make the strong case that government is the problem, not the solution. And then I think repeated attacks over multiple administrations that made service in government and government itself a four-letter word yeah. in parts of the United States. Yeah, yeah. And, and I knew many public servants when I was younger and admired them. And when I worked in government, I found enormous numbers of public servants who are unselfish, smart, committed to serving the American public. And I just think it's a shame that we don't recognize their heroism along with the heroism of our frontline workers. Yeah, yeah. An organization that really does try to highlight them as a partnership for public service. And I go to their mm -hmm. event every year and they celebrate these federal workers. And they're amazing people. Their dedication, yeah. their creativity, their innovativeness. But we look at them, or at least society has a tendency to look at them as bureaucrats. And of course, you and I probably can come and remember JFK. Public service was the highest calling. After you've made right. it in every other place, this is what you would do and you would give back to the nation. And this certainly is not looked at that way. What about our primary care system in the United States? Is that a contributing factor? We have a vestigial primary care system in the United States. In every other developed country, primary care is the center of the healthcare system. It is the point of first contact. It's the point at which people who need care get the care they need or are directed to the care they need. Mm -hmm. We undersupply primary care. We undervalue it. It is undercompensated, underdistributed. We really, really suffer from that. Yeah. We spend 
almost one out of every $5 in this country on healthcare. So I guess the question comes, how did we not have stockpile reserve equipment to battle this pandemic? Well, I think it goes to that fundamental flaw I just mentioned, which is our lack of attention to government, our lack of trust in it. So we don't like to give government money to spend. And that means that it is chronically, and this is obviously betrays a certain point of view on my part, mm -hmm. especially those discretionary programs. So the programs that are not obligated to spend money like Medicare, Medicaid, Social Security, we constantly eat into those budgets. And if something looks like it's being stored away for a rainy day, like a national stockpile, and for a pandemic that a lot of people feel may never happen because they're not heeding the warnings of Tony Fauci and Dr. Osterholm from Minnesota and yeah. tons of other sage students of pandemic and infectious disease, it's easy to deny and we eat into it. This is we eat into public health spending, which we have underfunded for decades. So we don't maintain the infrastructure that we need to keep ourselves safe. And that's what happened. We underfunded it, we undergoverned it, we under-maintained it. And then once the pandemic struck, we undervalued the stockpile itself. Yeah, yeah. And of course, we make all this stuff so far away, as in China. We don't have any facilities here in the United States that we can ramp up in case of an emergency. Yeah. Well, I think that what's happened is that we have had an imbalance between the requirements to protect our national security and the focus on just-in-time delivery and market supply. So uh, I have nothing against full free trade, but I do think we need to have essential national supplies that we can rely on in tough times. Yeah, yeah. We have over-relied on China especially to provide critical national healthcare goods and services. COVID-19 has been significantly more prevalent and deadlier in U.S. counties with high black populations. What do we know about this? We know it's true. We know that deaths mm -hmm. among uh, people of color in the United States far exceed their proportion of the population. Uh, I think it's a multi-factor problem. They are unable not to go to work because they lack the opportunities for employment that would enable them to work at home. So they work in lower level, less well-paid jobs. They live closer to the margin. They can't afford not to have a paycheck. They don't have savings. So they are exposed more commonly. When they get sick, they have fewer and less competent, less capable healthcare services available to them. By the way, there was a wonderful piece in the LA Times recently by Noam Levy about the healthcare that's available in the Mississippi Delta to Africans, mm -hmm. showing the legacy of racism that plagues that still stalks the healthcare system in that area. But we can see it in every part of the United States. So they start out behind, they get sick more, and when they get sick, they don't get the care they need. Yeah, yeah. What impact has this pandemic had on outpatient visits? We know they're down, but how significant has that been? This is really, for scholars of our healthcare system and the history of American medicine and policy and politics, this is the first time since the Great Depression that American healthcare has suffered with the rest of the country during a recession or a depression. Hmm. And the reason is partly because people are afraid to go to hospitals and doctors, but it's also partly that there has been a need 
to replace lucrative services like elective surgery with preparation for caring for pandemic victims. So a double hit, mm-hmm. and we don't know the exact numbers, but it's likely that outpatient visits are down by two thirds. Uh, now, to use a very bad metaphor for healthcare, most doctors are businesses, their offices are businesses. They eat what they can kill. Sorry about that metaphor. <laughs> if they don't have a visit, they don't collect any money. Yeah. Reduce their visits by 60%, you reduce their income by 60%. They can't pay their nurse, they can't pay their medical tech, they can't pay the person if they're a cardiologist who does their stress tests, and pretty soon they're laying people off and closing their doors. Mm. There's been an increase in so-called virtual visits, televisits, but they are only a small part of what's been lost and they don't pay as well. Yeah, man. You know, we always hope that these organizations or institutions are charities, but as you say, they're not, they're businesses. A hospital is a business and uh, they can't keep people on if they don't have revenue coming through the door. There's no answer Absolutely. to it. Yeah. I believe we had about 30 million people in this country who had no health insurance, perhaps in 2018, going into 2019. What is this unemployment, which is 30, million plus from the last I saw going to do to people who are not going to be covered and what kind of strain is that going to put onto the healthcare system? Well, since World War II, our healthcare system has linked insurance to employment. Mm -hmm. There's no place on earth where that link is as tight as it is in the United States. Over half of our population depends on employer-based insurance to give them coverage against the cost of illness. When people lose jobs, they lose insurance. Pretty simple equation. So when you have tens of millions of people out of jobs, you have tens of millions of people with their insurance at risk. Now, ironically and painfully, in the early part of the recession depression that we're in right now, the people losing their jobs tended to be in the hospitality industry. Mm-hmm. who were less likely to have insurance. So the rate of loss of insurance was not as high as expected because a lot of them didn't have insurance anyway. Interesting. But now, as the crisis deepens, and you're seeing that the companies that support the hospitality industry, the software industries, or the supply industries, who had better paying jobs and better benefits, as they begin to suffer, you're going to see, I think, a pretty dramatic upswing in loss of insurance. Uh, You're going to see millions more. So we had about 28 million people, as you said, without insurance going into 2020. That number is going to go up by some unknown amount, probably 5 to 10 million at least. That's going to hit the healthcare industry Mm -hmm. because they depend on people with insurance to pay the bills. If you have people coming in to see you, but they can't pay, that's worse than not having people coming in to see you from a financial standpoint. Maybe good from a healthcare standpoint. Yeah. From a financial standpoint, it's worse than not having anybody come. And yet you can't turn away people who are sick from coronavirus. Mm-hmm. So that is another hit to the healthcare system. Wow. Speaking of industries, what about the insurance industry? I mean, in some ways, I guess they lose some people who are, they were covering. But on the other hand, you just said before, outpatient visits may be down two-thirds and people are probably still paying. So I just wonder how that all shakes out. I think it's going to be, there's good news and bad news for the insurance industry. They're losing customers. Yeah. Or they're starting to lose customers. 
and they're actually good customers. So employment insurance is insurance that is good business for the insurance industry. But for the people who have insurance, those people are using a lot less of the insurance money that they have. So I would expect that margins on sustained policies will be substantially higher. Now they are regulated under the Affordable Care Act, so they have to spend a certain amount of their money on actual health care. It's got this bizarre term called medical loss ratio. It has to mm-hmm. be percent up to about 85%. The result is that they may end up giving checks to the people who they're insuring because they're not spending enough on health care. Mm-hmm. So it may help out some of the folks who are not going to doctors a little bit. All that remains to be figured out in the end, but it is a mixed bag for the insurance industry. Speak um, about the frontline healthcare workers, because we watch them on TV every night and we are in awe of their heroism, their ferocious commitment. But we also scratch our head when we look at some of the circumstances that are being put into with the improper equipment. How do you assess that whole situation? So first of all, I have to tell you that I have two children, Mm -hmm. both of them married. My son is a cardiologist. My daughter is a primary care physician. My daughter-in-law is an allergist immunologist. They all work at Massachusetts General Hospital here in Boston. My daughter-in-law has done a stint of work on a COVID floor as an attending. My son is going in this week to spend a week in the ICU taking care of COVID patients and others. And they, of course, have legions of friends who are continuously in and out of the front lines. My daughter cares for ambulatory patients and is less exposed. So it is very frightening. And I don't think there is any way to protect them. So you can gown up and glove up, but in the meantime, when you take off the gowns and gloves, you're surrounded by other healthcare workers who are themselves maybe asymptomatic, but we know very well that asymptomatic people can carry the virus and they're all constantly exposed to the virus at some level. So it's a very scary environment to work in. Sure is. I myself, and I'm not practicing anymore, but during the years when I was actively involved in hospital medicine, I know that I would have been there because it is simply something that we are socialized to do. Mm -hmm. It is part of our self-image. It is part of our feeling of obligation. It is a deeply held belief. We see it role modeled when we're training. So I understand it completely. I do wish, and I'm pleased to see, that our society would value it the way it should be valued. And I'm glad you're asking about it, but I think that getting people the protection they need is really vital. You shouldn't take this for granted. Yeah, no, it's like sending a soldier into war without a gun. It just is absolutely unbelievable. And they have that same mindset, and I can even see how they rely on one another. There is such a peer commitment to each other that they just don't only care about themselves, they care about their coworkers and their colleagues equally as deeply. If there's a next stimulus bill, what would you like to see into it that would really tend to address some of these needs that healthcare workers have? I think that what we need is a national commitment and a national effort without reservation, without limit, to getting people the protective equipment they need. Mm-hmm. And I also think, the ultimate way of protecting our workforce 
is to suppress the illness. And so a massive commitment to public health, to testing, to contact tracing, and to the public health measures to isolate people who are tested positive or are in contact with testing positive. So as long as this disease exists, the people who care for the victims will be at risk. The way to help the people who care for the people at risk is to get rid of the risk. As a physician, David, do you find it regrettable or predictable that the coronavirus has gotten so mixed up in politics? Regrettable. There's a great New Yorker story about the Epidemic Intelligence Service at the CDC that I'm part of the way through. It's, I think, a week or two ago in the May New Yorker about the history of the Epidemic Intelligence Service. So this is the detectives at CDC who track down all the foodborne illness events that emerge and who are so highly trusted by physicians. I will tell you that in my many 35 years of practicing primary care, if I had a question about an infectious illness, the first thing I would go to was the CDC website because I always, I could trust them, that they would give us a really straight shot. And that, the core of the CDC is this epidemic intelligence service. The epidemic intelligence service graduates and alumni are staff public health departments all over the United States. And there is a story about how Washington State, how the political leaders in Washington State deferred to their public health leaders when the epidemic first appeared and stepped back. Mm -hmm. And that willingness of politicians to step back in the face of public health threats is a bipartisan attitude. It was George W. Bush's response to the threat of H1N1. Yeah. And it is the way politicians have traditionally reacted to national conflict. They have deferred to science. Frankly, science is what has extended our life expectancy and has given us the miracles of modern medicine that we now depend on. What I find most disturbing is that there are groups of politicians who feel science is the enemy mm -hmm. because its message does not correspond to the story they want to tell. That's what troubles me as a trained physician and as a researcher and as a philanthropist who funds research. Yeah. It doesn't bode well for our future as a country because science is how we make progress. Mm -hmm. Finally, David, traumatic events like this bring with them an endless series of challenges, but they also provide opportunities to bring heightened attention to long neglected issues and shake up the system. What actions do you hope will result from this present crisis? I hope we will take a good look at our national preparedness and make sure that this lack of preparedness doesn't happen again. I hope we can rise above politics to do that not get caught up in blaming and shaming and finger pointing, but decide that we're going to do better next time and figure out how to do that. The other thing is I think it has shown a really merciless light on the failings of our healthcare system, on the ways in which we disadvantage minorities, peoples of color, on the ways in which we undersupply primary care, on the fact that our vital healthcare infrastructure 
is so fragilely financed that if we go into a deep recession, it collapses. Mm -hmm. That it's totally dependent on the volumes that go through its doors rather than being sustained as a vital infrastructure. It's a little bit like if we allowed the electrical grid to go dark because there was a recession, mm -hmm. or we allowed the phone system to disappear because people were not paying their phone bills. We can't survive as a country without healthcare, and we can't allow it to depend on the vagaries of the economy. Tell us about your website and some of the information you have up there that listeners might find to be of interest. Well, we're very proud of our website. We produce over 200 uh, pieces of publication, 200 publications a year. They range from infographics to detailed reports and issue briefs. We have an enormous amount of stuff on coverage. The most downloaded work that we produce is about international health comparisons. Month in and month out, the thing that people are most interested in, even as the United States claims it's exceptionalism and that it's not comparable to any place else, our clients want to learn about the rest of the developed world and how they organize and finance healthcare. So when we benchmark the United States against 10 other developed countries, looking at the cost of care, the quality of care, the fairness and equity of care, and all that is available on our website, as is a detailed description of 30 plus healthcare systems and how they operate. There's a lot to be found and obviously we welcome visitors. We have about 160,000 subscribers to our materials and uh, pretty much on about 50% increased over the last seven years. Fantastic. Well, it's an excellent website. I go to it frequently and it is just exceptional. I want to thank you, David, for taking the time today to share this information and these insights. It was a really interesting conversation and it was a pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you, Denver. Take care.